This is Chapter Three of George Hamilton's A Voyage Round the World in His Majesty's Frigate Pandora, read here by Roy Schreiber. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. A Voyage Round the World in His Majesty's Frigate Pandora, Chapter Three Voyage from Anamooka with an account of the loss of the Pandora. The wind not permitting us to visit Tongatobu, we proceeded to Katoa and the Navigator's Isles, the loss of our tender having prevented us from doing it before, and endeavored to fall in with the easternmost of these isles. On the morning of the 12th of July, we discovered a cluster of islands in the northwest quarter, but the wind being favorable for us, left examining of them till our return to the friendly isles on the fourteenth in the forenoon saw three isles supposed to be the cluster of isles called by bougainville navigators isles the largest the natives called tumalua we passed them at a little distance and found much entreaty necessary to bring them on board on the fifteenth we saw another island which proved to be otutu ilala which has already been described. Here we found some of the French navigators' clothing and buttons, and there is little doubt but they have murdered them. On the 18th saw the group of islands we discovered on our way here, and on the 19th ran down the north side till we had come to an opening where we saw the sea on the other side. A sound is formed here by some islands to the southeast and northwest and the interior bays which promise better anchorage than any other place in the friendly isles the natives told us that there were excellent watering places in several different parts within the sound the country is well wooded several of the inferior chiefs were on board one of the tatafe and one of the tubu family but the principal chief was not on board we supposed he was coming off just as we sailed. The natives in general were very fair and honorable in their dealings. They were more inoffensive and better behaved than any we have seen for some time. They have frequent intercourse with Anamuka, and their religion and customs and language are the same. A number of beautiful parakeets were brought off by the natives, all remarkable for the richness and variety of their plumage. The group of islands was called Howe's Islands but were particularly distinguished by the name of Barrington's, Sawyer's, Hottam's, and Jarvis Islands. The sound itself was called Curtis Sound. Under the general denomination of Howe's Island were included several islands to the southeast, to which we gave no particular name, and two more islands to the westward, called Bickerton's Islands, including two small islands near the above. There seems to be a tolerable landing place on the northwest side of Gardner's Island. All this part of the islands has the most barren aspect. There were evident marks of volcanic eruptions having happened. A very singular appearance which this part of the island presented, I cannot omit mentioning. It bore the figure of a piece of flat tableland, and without the slightest eminence or indentation and smoke was issuing from the edges round its whole circumference on the twenty-third we passed an inhabited island which we supposed to be pilesart island it has two remarkable high peaks upon it on the twenty-sixth we saw middleburg island 
and run down between it and Iua, examined it without success, passed Tongatobu, got some provisions here, but found the water brackish. On the twenty-ninth we anchored again in the road of Anamuka. We were sorry to hear the tender had not been there. On the fifth of August we again proceeded on our voyage. As the occurrences at that time bore some semblance to the transactions in our last visit, to avoid wounding the delicate or satiating the licentious, we shall conclude in the torpid phraseology of the log with ditto repeated. Everything being ready for sea on the third day of August, we sailed from Anamuka, and on the fifth discovered an island of some considerable extent, called by the natives Unu Afau, which we call Proby's Island, in honor of Commissioner Proby. We traded with the inhabitants for some hours. The land was hilly, and the houses much larger construction than we had observed before in those seas. We were now convinced that we were further to the westward than we imagined, and therefore shaped a course to fall in to the eastward of Wallace's island, and the next day fell in with it. We gave presents, as was customary, to the first boat, who, from a theft they committed, were afraid to return. Their cheekbones were much bruised and flattened, and some had both their little fingers cut off. We bore away, attending to steer in the track of Carteret and Bly, between Spiritus Sancto and Santa Cruz, and on the 8th saw land to the westward. We sounded, but found no bottom. We run down the island, and saw a vast number of houses amongst the trees. It was very hilly, and from the great height of some of them may be called mountains. They were cultivated to the top, the reason of which, I presume, is from being so full of inhabitants. It is about seven miles long, and being a new discovery, we called it Grenville's Island, in honor of Lord Grenville. The name the natives gave it is Botuma. They came off in a fleet of canoes, rested on their paddles, and gave the war-hoop at stated periods. They were all armed with clubs and meant to attack us, but the magnitude and novelty of such an object as a man of war struck them with a mixture of wonder and fear. They were, however, perfectly ignorant of firearms, and seemed much startled at the report of a musket, were too shy to stand the experiment of a great gun. As they came off with hostile intentions, they brought no women with them. They wore necklaces, bracelets, and girdles of white shells. Their bodies were curiously marked with figures of men, dogs, fishes, and birds upon every part of them, so that every man was a moving landscape. These marks were all raised and done, I suppose, by pinching up the skin. They were great adepts in thieving and uncommonly athletic and strong. One fellow was making off with some booty, but was detected, and although five of the stoutest men in the ship were hanging upon him, and had hold fast of his long flowing black hair, he overpowered them all, and jumped overboard with his prize. There is a high promontory on the island, which we named Mount Temple. On the eleventh, no land being then in sight, we run over a reef of coral, at eleven fathom water, we were much alarmed, passed it in five minutes, and on sounding immediately afterwards, found no bottom. This was called Pandora's Reef. On the twelfth, in the morning, 
we discovered an island well wooded, but not inhabited. It had two remarkable promontories on it, one resembling a mitre, and the other a steeple, from whence we called it Mitre Island. We passed it, and stood to the westward, and at ten the same morning discovered another island to the northwest. It is entirely cultivated, and has a vast number of inhabitants, though only a mile in length. The beach from the east, round by the south, is a white sand, but too much surf for a boat to attempt to land. In gratitude for the many good things we had on board, and the very high state of preservation in which they kept, we call this Cherry's Island, in honor of Mr. Cherry Esquire, Commissioner of the Vittling Office. On the 13th of August we discovered another island to the northwest. It is mountainous, and covered with wood to the very summit. We saw no inhabitants, but smoke in many different parts of it, from which it may be presumed it is inhabited. This we called Pitt's Island. On the 17th at midnight we discovered breakers on each bow. We had just room to wear the ship, and as this merciful escape was from the vigilance of one Wells, who was looking out ahead, it was called Wells's Shoal. Those hairbreadth escapes may point out the propriety of a consort. In the morning, at daylight, we put about to examine the danger we were in, and found we had got embayed in a double reef, which will very soon be an island. We run round its northwest end, and on the twenty-third saw land, which we supposed to be Louisiade, a cape bearing northeast and by east. We called it Cape Rodney. Another contiguous to it was called Cape Hood, and a mountain between them we named Mount Clarence. After passing Cape Hood, the land appears lower, and to trench away about northwest, forming a deep bay, and it may be doubted whether it joins New Guinea or not. We pursued our course to the westward, keeping Endeavour Straits open, by which means we hope to avoid the dangers Captain Cook met with in the higher latitudes. On the 25th saw breakers hauled up and passed to the westward of them. The sea broke very gently on them. To these we gave the name of Lookout Shoals. Before noon we saw more breakers, the reef of which was composed of very large stones, and called it Stony Reef Island on seeing obstructions to the southward, stood to the westward, where there appeared to be an opening. We saw an island in that direction, and a reef extending a considerable way to the northwest. Hauled up the wind, seeing our passage obstructed, and stood, off and on, under an easy sail, in night till daylight. In the morning bore away, and discovered four islands, to which the name of Murray's Islands was given. On top of the largest there was something resembling a fortification. We saw at the same time three two-masted boats. We kept running along the reef, and in the forenoon thought we saw an opening. Lieutenant Corner was immediately ordered to get ready to discover if there was a passage for the ship, and went to the topmast to look round him before he left us. 
it was judged necessary that he should take with him an axe, some fuel, provisions, a little water, and a compass previous to his departure. It was now the 28th of August. It had lately been our custom to lay two in the night, Monsieur Bougainville having represented this part of the ocean as exceedingly dangerous, and it certainly is the boldest piece of navigation that ever has been attempted. We would gladly have continued the same custom, but the great length of the voyage would not permit it, as, after we passed to the westward of Bougainville's track, the ocean was perfectly unexplored. At five in the afternoon a signal was made from the boat that a passage through the reef was discovered for the ship, but wishing to be well informed in so intricate a business, and the day being far spent, we waited the boats coming on board, made a signal to expedite her, and afterwards repeated it, night closing fast upon us, and considering our former misfortunes of losing the tender and the jolly boat, rendered it necessary, both for the preservation of the boat and the success of the voyage, to endeavor by every means possible to get hold of her. False fires were burnt, and muskets fired from the ship, and answered by the boat reciprocally, as the flashes from their muskets were distinctly seen by us, she was reasonably soon expected on board. We now sounded, but had no bottom, with a hundred and ten fathom line, till past seven o'clock, when we got ground at fifty fathom. The boat was now seen close under the stern. We were at the same time lying to, to prevent the ship fore-reaching. Immediately on sounding this last Time, the topsails were filled, but before the tacks were hauled on board and the sails trimmed, she struck on a reef of rocks, and at that instant the boat got on board. Every possible effort was attempted to get her off by the sails, but failing, they were furled and the boats hoisted out with a view to carry out an anchor. Before that was accomplished, the carpenter reported that she made eighteen inches of water in five minutes. In a quarter of an hour more, she had nine feet of water in the hold. The hands were immediately turned to the pumps, to bail at different hatchways. Some of the prisoners were let out of irons and turned to the pumps. At this dreadful crisis it blew very violently, and she beat so hard upon the rocks that we expected her every minute to go to pieces. It was an exceedingly dark and stormy night, and the gloomy horrors of death presented all round, being everywhere encompassed with rocks, shoals, and broken water. About ten she beat over the reef, and we let go the anchor in fifteen fathom water. The guns were ordered to be thrown overboard, and what hands could be spared from the pumps were employed thrumming a topsail to haul under her bottom to endeavor to fodder her. To add to our distress, at this juncture one of the chain pumps gave way, and she gained fast upon us. The scheme of the topsail was now laid aside, and every soul fell to bailing and pumping. All the boats, excepting one, were obliged to keep a long distance off on account of the broken water, and the very high surf that was running near us. We bailed between life and death, for had she gone down before daylight, every soul must have perished. She now took a heel, 
and some of the guns that were endeavouring to be thrown overboard run down to leeward, which crushed one man to death. About the same time, a spare topmast came down from the boom and killed another man. The people now became faint at the pumps, and it was necessary to give them some refreshment. We had luckily between the decks a cask of exceedingly strong ale, which was brewed at Anamooka. This was tapped and served regularly to all hands, which was much preferable to spirits, as it gave them strength without intoxication. During this trying occasion, the men behaved with the utmost intrepidity and obedience, not a man flinching from his post. We continually cheered them at the pumps with the delusive hopes of it being daylight soon. About half an hour before daybreak, a council of war was held among the officers, and she was then settling fast in the water. It was their unanimous opinion that nothing further could be done for the preservation of His Majesty's ship, and it was their next care to save the lives of the crew, to effect which spars, booms, hen-coops, everything buoyant was cut loose, that when she went down they might chance to get hold of something. The prisoners were ordered let out of irons. The water was now coming in fast in the gun-ports that the pump could not discharge, and at, to this minute the men never swerved from their duty. She now took a very heavy heel, so much so that she lay quite on one side. One of the officers now told the captain, who was standing aft, that the anchor on our bow was under water, and that she was then going, and bidding him farewell, jumped over the quarter into the water. The captain then followed his example, and jumped after him. At that instant she took her last heel, and while every one was scrambling to windward, she sank in an instant. The crew had just time to leap overboard, accompanying it with a most dreadful yell. The cries of men drowning in the water was at first awful in the extreme, but as they sunk and became faint, died away by degrees. The boats, who were at some considerable distance in the drift of the tide, in about a half hour or a little better, picked up the remainder of our wretched crew. Morning now dawned, and the sun shone out. A sandy key four miles off, and about thirty paces long, afforded us a resting place. When all the boats arrived, we mustered our remains, and found that thirty-five men and four prisoners had drowned. After we had a little recovered our strength, the first care was to haul up the boats. A guard was placed over the prisoners. Providentially, a small barrel of water, a keg of wine, some biscuit, and a few muskets and cartridge boxes had been thrown into the boat. The heat of the sun and the reflection from the sand was now excruciating, and our stomachs being filled with salt water, from the great length of time we were swimming before we were picked up, rendered our thirst most intolerable, and no water was allowed to be served out the first day. By a calculation which we made, by filling compass boxes and every utensil we had, we could admit of an allowance of two small wine glasses of water a day to each man for sixteen days. A saw and a hammer had fortunately been in one of the boats, which enabled us, with the greater expedition, to make preparations for our voyage by repairing one of the boats, which was in very bad state, 
and cutting up the floorboards of all the boats into uprights, round which we stretched canvas to keep the water from breaking into the boats at sea. We made tents of the boat's sails, and when it was dark we set the watch and went to sleep. In the night we were disturbed by the irregular behavior of one Connell, which led us to suspect he had stole our wine and got drunk, but on further inquiry we found that the excruciating torture he suffered from thirst had led him to drink salt water, by which means he went mad, and died in the sequel of the voyage. Next morning Mr. George Passmore, the master, was dispatched in one of the boats to visit the wreck to see if anything floated round her that might be useful to us in our present distressed state. He returned in two hours and brought with him a cat, which he found clinging to the top-gallant masthead, a piece of top-gallant mast, which he cut away, and about fifteen feet of lightning chain, which being copper, we cut up and converted into nails for fitting out the boats. Some of the gigantic cockle was boiled, and cut into junks, lest any one should be inclined to eat, but our thirst was too excessive to bear anything that would increase it. This evening a glass of water was served to each man. A paper parcel of tea having been thrown into the boat, the officers joined all their allowance, and had tea in the captain's tent with him. When it was boiled, every one took a salt-cellar spoonful and passed it to his neighbor, by which means we moistened our mouths, and by slow degrees received very much refreshment from it. The End of Chapter 3 